we're having a giveaway. I want to hear from you to find out what content you want to hear. So email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com with a suggestion for a topic you'd like covered or a guest you'd want to hear on the show. And you'll be entered into a lottery for a PGD Yeti tumbler. I'll do the drawing in two weeks and announce the winner in our newsletter. So you have until two weeks from when you hear this, from when this airs, to enter. May the most loyal listener win. This show is sponsored by Set for Life Insurance, the ultimate client experience in the insurance industry. Are you looking for the perfect insurance coverage that suits your needs? Founded in 1993 by President Jamie K. Fleischner, Set for Life Insurance specializes in individual life, disability, and long-term care insurance. As brokers, they represent numerous companies in the industry, ensuring that their clients get the best products at the most cost-effective rate. What sets Set for Life Insurance apart? You'll enjoy special discounts, priority underwriting handling, and even exceptions in the underwriting process. So why wait? Contact Set for Life Insurance today and let them be your insurance partner for life. Visit their website at setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. On this episode, how to make your patients like you in 90 seconds or less. Time starts now. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Nick Boothman, thanks so much for being on the podcast. (laughs) My pleasure. Great to be here. You know, I forgot my stethoscope. I wanted to look the part. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. So for the guests who haven't heard of him, and, and many of you I'm sure have, Nicholas Boothman has spent more than 25 years studying the ways that different people connect and communicate. He actually started out as a photographer, fashion and advertising photographer, observing people from behind the lens. And so all that time spent observing, he turned into now being called by the New York Times, one of the leading experts in face-to-face communication in the world. He's taught his revolutionary technique of report by design. I love doing everything by design, report by design to thousands of corporations, colleges, and universities around the world, including the Harvard and London business schools. His first two books, How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less, and Convince Them in 90 Seconds or Less, have been translated into more than 30 languages. Former fashion and advertising photographer who dealt with hundreds of new faces a week for clients like AT&T, Revlon, and Coca-Cola, he's now recognized as a world-renowned expert in turning first impressions into profitable relationships, and the New York Times has called him the new Dale Carnegie. Again, Nick Boothman, thank you so much for taking the time to teach us how to make patients like us in 90 seconds or less. Oh, man. I, listen, this is my passion. My passion is to get the word out there. You know, I, I'm, I've just started putting on my website that anthropologists now agree that it is not the survival of the fittest that got us to where we are. It's the survival of the friendliest. Our ability to connect and form groups and do things together is why we're still going strong. So this is my message, and this is huge. Agreed. I mean, we talk about it on, on the show for many reasons, for good or for bad. Human beings are tribal. And if you are likable, you will have a better place in the tribe. If you're not likable, you may end up excommunicated from the tribe. And, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, that would mean death. So, yes, I I totally agree. Likeability is critical. So my question is, can we really learn to be more likable or is it isn't that an immutable trait that we're just born with or not? Well, I mean, uh, super duper question, but and you know, I want to start by saying when I say make people like you, it means make them feel that comfortable and trust you. I mean, we use the word like, and some people say I don't care if people like me or not. Well, you know what? That's a pretty stupid thing to say, really, because uh, as you were starting to say, there are three good reasons why it's important that people like you or trust and feel comfortable with you. Number one, when we like somebody we tend to see the best in them and what they represent. If we don't like them, we immediately tend to see the worst in them. When we like people, we unconsciously look for reasons to say yes to them. And the flip side, if we don't like someone, we're, no, we... And the third thing is, it's really great to go to work with people that 
you trust and feel comfortable with. You know, all it takes is one jerk in a group to make the day drag all day long. You go home in a bad mood, you go back to work thinking, oh, not another day at this. So these are really pretty big deals. So one of the things I love is the 90 seconds, right? Because we see, you know, 20, 30 patients a day, some more, right? So we have a really limited amount of time to each for each patient to get them, find out what's wrong with them, figure it out, examine them, explain it to them, and then have them agree. And so we really have that short period of time. So, but why did you pick, why 90 seconds? Because if I'd have told the truth, I mean, already people thought, oh, this guy's crazy. But, but if I'd have told the truth and said how to make people like you in two seconds or less, they would have, nobody, everyone would have thought I was a raving nutter. But the truth is that we decide how we feel about somebody in the first two seconds of seeing them or hearing them if it's on the phone. It's the fight or flight response. We look immediately. Look, you know, I say to my audiences, you know, how, I say, how long do you think it takes? And blah, blah, blah. we count down the numbers and eventually some people get it. But some people say, oh, 90 seconds. I say, are you telling me that if you're in your apartment or your house and the stranger's walking up to your door, it's going to take you 90 seconds to figure out if they're getting in or not? It's a flash. We, we decide how we feel about someone in the first two seconds of seeing them. And right or wrong, I mean, look, it's, people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Well, you know what? I meet tons of people who say, when people get to know me, they really like me. But you know what? That's fantastic for your family and your next door neighbor and anybody else who can't escape you. But the point is that we do make those snap decisions and patients make those snap decisions and, and physicians make those snap decisions about people. It's, it's the fight or flight response and it's unconscious. And you can't stop people doing it, but there's a lot you can do to make it work in your favor. Well, let's talk about that then, right? Because when we walk into the exam room, right? I mean, or it's an emergency medicine physician. It's not necessarily an exam room. It's there, you know, in the curtain. You're an anesthesiologist. You're meeting a patient that, that you've never met, that you're about to give anesthesia for like a major surgery, right? You've got a really short period of time, but that's great because we don't need that long. So how would you recommend that we start this interaction? Well, I, I guess what we might want to do here is break down then, because I'm a, not a physician, but break this down into emergency situations or going to the doctor, you know, or going to the hospital and meeting someone. Because, I mean, the, the, the time component, with um, I'm guessing, with emergency surgery is kind of different. Than, no, oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I think for emergency surgery, <laughs> it's it's... There's like someone who's had a trauma and they're crashing and then rapport building goes by the wayside. We're just trying to save that. But even with like an emergency appendectomy, that's not as like we still have time to introduce ourselves. And in the same actually in the same time period that if someone came in with a cold, like you're you know, because yeah. if you came in with a cold, you've got 30, 40 other people waiting for your attention. So we really all. You know, if if it's if, if someone's dying, there's no rapport building and everything else. There there is a little bit of time there, so I think yeah. we can compartmentalize that as all being the okay. same. Okay, okay, thanks. Well, the, the thing, excuse me, one second. I'm going to take off my mic and cough. I learned to do that on stage <coughs> when there's no sound guy. Um, we have an excellent sound guy, and he will take care of that. Oh, good. <laughs> thanks. You know, look, first of all, the, the thing is, patients want to connect with your human side, not your professional side, because that's the side they feel safe with, and that's the side they trust. So what do humans do uh, in those situations normally? Well, it's simple. First of all, look them in the eye. Smiles may not be the, the best thing, I don't know, in your medical situations, but look them in the eye and smile. Point your heart towards them. It doesn't, not like a lunatic, but I mean, don't cross over and hide your heart. It makes them feel safer. And synchronize your body language with theirs. This is a really simple thing to do. Just, you know, I mean, you're nodding now. I'm nodding with you. Things like that. Yeah, <laughs> you do that now. Okay. And what happens when you're synchronizing is in their mind, they say, I don't know what it is about this person, but there's something I really like. Well, they're being a bit like you, but it's normal. It's what families do when they get along well. You look around a restaurant, look at the people who are getting on. They're probably... They pick up their knives and fork at the same time. They lean forward at the same time to talk to each other. They sit back. It's just simple synchronizing of your body language is a great way to do it. But the first thing is, if you're not if you're not good at eye contact, and not everybody is, just notice what color their eyes are. 
That's enough, and you can forget it straight away. That's enough eye contact to say trust is in the air because that's what happens. Eye contact sends the unconscious signal that trust is in the air. Uh, pointing your heart at somebody sends the unconscious signal that I'm not going to harm you. I've got nothing in my hands. I'm not hiding anything. I'm exposing my heart. It's just an unconscious signal. And a smile too. I mean, if there's a situation where you can do it, a smile says, I'm happy and confident. Yeah. Obviously, if someone comes in, you know, half dead, and you're not going to start smiling at them, I assume. No, I mean, um, but in, in most situations, even if, you know, people are sick, we, you know, we can still approach them. Not everything is grave in what we do. A lot of stuff is, yeah. but not, and, you know, we can figure out when it's appropriate to smile. But I really like these recommendations because... I was afraid some of them were going to be too onerous, right? Because once you get into the visit, we've got so much to concentrate on. But what you're talking about, as you said earlier, is just the first two seconds. So you walk into a room, these two things, look at their eye color, point your heart at them. No, notice their eye color, not your own. Point your heart at them. And then the visit, and then you make an introduction and the visit gets started. So yeah, I really like those things. And the big one, the absolute holy grail of the first impressions is finding common ground. The minute you find common ground with somebody, they, you, you have a bond with them. Yeah. Now, it's socially or in business, it might be, you know, you, I don't know, you, well, I, look, I get people to stand next to each other in my, my, even in my big speeches and just say, look, find common ground. You got 50, not that you both work for the same company or both doctors, or you're both wearing shirts. But maybe you've got twins in the family. Maybe you both cried when you watched Titanic. I don't know. And you know what? They're like old friends forever. Yeah. And, and in any occupation, you can do that with somebody. It's the hunt for common ground. That is the biggest one you can possibly get. And most, when you get good at it, most people can find common ground in about 10 or 15 seconds. That's great. That's great. And then, you know, I, I find that chatting people up, like, how is your weekend or if it's friday what are you doing this week and something like that like getting them and then that is often a way to find something similar you know a little, little lighthearted during the doctor's visit a little lighthearted yeah well let's talk about that if you yeah. want to i mean it's a great thing uh, i'm not mad about asking closed questions okay you know, uh, how was your weekend good uh now ah. i think of another question right um i get people to to do what I call it ask talk show host questions. Okay. If you look at a talk back in the day when yeah, yeah. we were talk show hosts, but today it's what you'd but it's look, you are doing exactly what I'm about to say. You start with a statement followed by an open question. And you're doing it all the time right now. That's what journalists do. That's what talk show hosts do. The example I was just well a while back I did this on Good Morning America and they said, okay, well what do you mean? I said, okay because I was in New York, I said, I hear New York's a fantastic place. If I only had four hours, what should I see? Then it's over to them. So you set the stage with, you know, you know, I know a parking lot's like a nightmare this morning. How do you find a parking spot? And then you're off. And then all you have to do is what you're doing right now is send feedback. Yeah. Either, either spoken feedback or physical feedback, you know, or what I call international grunts will do. Which is, uh, <laughs> you know, there's nothing in the world worse than talking to somebody who doesn't give you feedback. <laughs> it's like talking to a brick wall. All you want to do is run for it. That's really scary. So give feedback. I remember my, my doctor, my first, well, my first doctor, I mean, when I moved to Canada, she happens to be now the minister of something or other in the government, but she would give f- too much feedback. She'd be nodding all the time like this looking really interested. It's like some, someone told her what to do. My, when she went off to be a member of parliament, the doctor that followed, just, it's just like being in the pub in a conversation. It's relaxed, you know, and she's talking and she's saved my life twice. She's absolutely my hero. But she's got it. She's so got it. It's just, you know, I do, uh, occasionally I do one-on-one coaching for people, very occasionally. And there are always people who've got Usually people with lots of money and think that, you know, nobody loves them or they're, they're getting hard done by socially. And the last person I did, what I do is I do four sessions. And, I, and I'm not doing them now. But the, the deal was, 
we have to meet first face to face first time. And I won't do anyone in Canada in the country I live in. So basically, people would fly in. I go out to the airport, which was cool. I loved it. I'd get on the subway, go to the airport, meet them at Tim Hortons or a cafe at the airport. And I say, look, because I, I always wear red shoes. I say, I'm the guy in red shoes and I'm eating in the cafe. And I can tell as they walk towards me everything about them. They'd be looking around. And what's more, they've been reading up on my book about what to do. So they'll come over <laughs> doing it, you know, stiff as hell. And the last guy that came, he was terribly paranoid. And he sat down and he's trying to synchronize my body language and all this sort of thing <laughs> and do it all by the book. And I said, at one point, I said, stop, you're driving me crazy. You're so intense. Just let it all go. And he sort of, I said, no, man, just, you know, I don't know, open your legs, sit back, lay back, look yeah. around here, look at everybody else. And he said, and then when he went back, he said, I'm fixed. <laughs> he said, I don't need the residency, keep the money, but I'm fixed. He, he was just too intense about yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you do a little bit of eye contact, <coughs> smiling is great, but not everybody has a smile. So I teach people just to say, I, I give them, I give them in the books, you'll see. I say, look, go. If I was a fashion photographer, and but not all professional models, I was a fashion photographer for 25 years, not all professional models have a natural smile. So what happens in the studio is when they come in, we'll use the word great in bursts of three, we'll go great. And then so the assistant will go great, and the hairdresser will go great, and the model will go great. And before you know it, their eyes are smiling, and their mouth is smiling. So I tell, I tell people, look, if you want to have a great smile, go home tonight, look yourself in the mirror in the bathroom, lock the door, and go great, until you feel incredibly stupid or you crack up. Then the next time you're going to meet somebody, under your voice as you approach, just go, hey, and you know what? It will trigger that the eye, your eyes will be smiling and you will be really smiling. And it's such a simple thing. Yeah. And, you know, and it's great. It's great. <laughs> great. What are some of the pitfalls that we might fall in? Aside, you know, you mentioned it, you know, having a, a fake looking smile or yeah. a grimace, right, where you're frowning in the room or really thinking too hard about all this stuff so you're all stiff. But with that first inter interaction, right, that first introduction, any big mistakes that we can make? Oh, yeah. okay. Lack of eye contact. I, I, you're busy, you're thinking, you've probably looked at the person. I, I don't know. We're looking at the computer. That's our big thing is we're always having to type and look at our computer. And yeah. and we're focused too much on that. So okay. So make sure we got. Yeah. It. Well, I mean, that, I I talk about that as well for people who are in social media. I say, look, if you're in a, if you're talking to somebody, you're gonna look away. Say, look, I say, look, if I'm looking away, it's just because I'm making notes. That's all. Let them know that. Not that you're bloody doing the football pools or yeah. playing Cluedo or something. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, um, I used to say Minesweeper, but I don't think that's on okay. computers anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know th those things just. It's, it really is, you know, if you can get to the point where you you think your patient, or obviously, I mean, you, some of them must drive you crazy, but they're like your favorite cousin or your crazy uncle or whatever. I call it assuming rapport. You, you know, you can do the stuff I've told you, or you can simply assume rapport and assume. Have you ever been to England? Yes. You ever, yeah, okay. Well, the Brits are brilliant at that. They'll talk to anybody half the time. You're standing at the bus stop. Oh, oh, look at this. And they assume rapport, which means that you synchronize your body language to the person. If they come in and they're like this, you know, you go do the same thing, you know, or, or the way you are now, I'm, you're doing that with your face. <laughs> you know, not quite that much. But just synchronize body language with them, and they'll feel totally comfortable. It's simpler than you can possibly imagine. But earlier on, what you were alluding to at the beginning was that these physicians... You know, they really want to be better. Well, is that true? Because I've spoken to groups. I've been hired to speak to groups of doctors. They ain't the best audiences. They don't want to hear from some guy saying, this is how you should do it, or this is what works you. I'm a little skeptical about a lot of physicians because they are the toughest audience I've ever had. Not my listeners, because this is what we talk about Good. on the show. So this is Good. a self-selecting audience that yeah. are people that are trying to be better. I mean, that's the whole premise of the podcast is they're Good. just trying to improve themselves in all aspects of their, of, of their life, be it in or out of the exam room. So this is in the exam room, but yeah. it'll help them out of the exam room. And I would argue a, a good place to practice this stuff is out of the yeah. exam room. And then you'll more naturally do it in the exam room. With your coworkers, with your 
obviously your patients with their families and all this sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Another thing is that I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure you've had someone on talking about it, but I mean, I have a, a book called, yeah, I wrote this, The Power of Story Speak, and it's not that widely available because I wrote it for a different reason, for a training. But, you know, in the research, and again, do stop me if you've spoken about this, but patients don't want to hear from, they'd rather hear from another patient who's been through it than the doctor. They want a story. They want to hear someone else's story. I think it was John Cleese, the guy from Monty Python. He did a whole bunch of training videos for doctors, along with a, an English doctor called Dr. Rob Buckman. And they did everything from ballroom dancing with a colostomy bag and all this sort of thing, just to say, look, you're not the only one going through this. Yeah. But they do. It's We spend approximately 80% of our lives devouring stories of one kind or another, which is exactly what your podcast is. This is a bunch of stories. Whether it's a gossip, whether it's he's a story, uh, take a chicken, do this, stick it in there. That's just, we listen. It's all about stories. We feel so great with stories. So maybe to some extent, doctors can learn to to come up with a little bit of story speak or use metaphors about to, to do things. We actually had an episode with a neurologist, Scott Abramson, who you know devoted a lot of his career to improving the doctor-patient interaction. Actually, he's going to be on the show again soon. And he wrote a book where he talks about, that's one of the things he talks about, you know, patients don't respond to statistics. So oh, there's a 30% chance or there's a 25% chance that you might. But if you come in with, well, my Aunt Fanny had symptoms just like that. And funny thing, as it turns out, her diagnosis was X. You know, wow, I never would have thought that'd be the case. But there's a lot of stuff that you're explaining that really sounds, I think it might be the same situation. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing I went through 20 odd years ago, I went through a, a bout of, well, I, I went through, let me get to the point. I re, rewrote the lexicon on the big C because mm. I think every, all the whole lexicon to do with that is a load of rubbish. It's really bloody scary. So I went for primo therapy. I had a bonkologist um, okay. and I, and I had a, First of all, there's no such thing as cancer. It's not a thing. It's a process. Okay. It's not a thing. It's a process. So I didn't have cancer. I had a cancering colon. That means it's in action. It's moving. Yeah. And it can be moved over the cliff into the sea. And I also never went in a waiting room. I went once because it was raining. And someone was staying. This is why I was going for my, what's it? My uh, uh, and And someone said, Oh, peanut butter's just doing me. I thought, oh, no, man, I'm having peanut butter every day for breakfast. Now I've got to think it's probably going to do me in. So I'm not going in there anymore with listening to people moaning and groaning about what's not, not, not working for them. You know, I mean, there's a little things, but I'm just talking from my own experience. Yeah, no, but, that's... But, you know, but I think the lexicon around certain subjects. So getting back to your point, which I found scary just listening to then and saying, well, there's a 25% chance. I think that doesn't sound too good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. Mind you, then again, there are people who want the facts, I guess. Right. But and but we don't respond as well to to that. You know, I read somewhere that, that human beings can't comprehend numbers greater than two or three. So you have one, two, three, or many. So anything above that, the numbers are just too big. So if you say like, well, there's a 98% chance, you know, this is just too big to conceptualize. I, I still think it's important to to share this information because if we have the knowledge, it, it's the onus is on us to share it with them. And yeah, then if they yeah. respond to it, we can take a deeper dive. And if they don't, then we can just leave it at that. But so something else that, that you wrote about in your book was attitude. So I want to talk about that next, right? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, sorry, yeah. go ahead, please. No, please. So what is the significance of attitude and can we fake it? Well, you can, uh, no. No? Yes, okay. no, yes, no, no, no. Look, the significance is the very first thing we respond to when we see somebody is their attitude. You know, if you're looking across the, the platform or across the cafe, across the bar at somebody, they're not even looking at you. We respond to their attitude, the quantity and the quality of the energy they're giving off. You know, if, if I suddenly got, if I had to come on this podcast this morning, you know, like this, you'd have been responding to me angry. You'd be responding to me in a different way. The thing about attitudes is 
An attitude not only drives your behavior, it drives the other person's behavior, because that's just the way we're wired up. However, let's get straight what I mean by attitude. I'm not talking about positive attitudes or negative attitudes. I totally don't get that subjective. I'm talking about, in the book, I call them really useful attitudes and really useless attitudes. Really useful attitudes that might be welcoming, curious, resourceful, enthusiastic. These are really useful attitudes. When you can, you know, you don't have to do it all day long, but when you're connecting with somebody, find one that you that comes naturally to you. Maybe you're naturally a curious person. Maybe you're naturally a resourceful person. Really useless attitudes are things like bored, rude, hostile, or appearing that way when you're really not. People who listen to you like this, and you think, oh, you creep, you know, stop doing that. But that's just the way you've learned to listen. Well, uncross your flipping hands, you yeah. know, and be nice. Uh, and, and they are very scary. Look, I've, okay, I'm closer to 80 and I am 70, and I've had my share of physicians in my life, and I've got some that I have one who's even hired me to speak to doctors, and he is the worst. He never does eye contact, he's always late, he's, he's good, you know, and he'll never change. And so, yeah. But but I mean the nice ones. Oh, I could spend all day with them. But so they have to learn to give give me the hook and get get me out of there. So let's say let's say it's an emergency department physician, right? This is we'll use an extreme circumstance, right? An emergency department physician. They were just resuscitating a patient in the other room. Patient passes away, right? So they leave the room and they've got to find a way to go on to the next patient who might be in with like a low-grade fever that's just making the patient nervous. They're not patient, not sure when to go to the doctor, so they just go to the doctor for, for lots of stuff. So so how can the they think about their attitude in that situation, right? You're coming from a pretty, pretty dark place. You just watch someone die in front of you, and now you got to go to the next patient. So it, how does attitude play a role there? Well, you tell me what, I mean, first of all, it's personal, but yeah. what do you, I mean, I've got lists in my book of really useful attitudes and really useless attitudes. And if you are a normally resourceful person, you fall back into your resourceful attitude. You know, okay. what can I do now? What can I help? You know, because they will, they will pick up on your attitude. Okay. Uh, so, so I'm if, not saying that you have to be, you know, jolly fellow. No, I'm no. just saying what, what would be useful in that situation? Maybe curiosity. Maybe your spirituality, I don't know what, for each different person. But you do have to compartmentalize. And listen, that's what you, I guess that's what you train as, how you handle it yourself. Maybe everybody handles it differently. Yeah. I don't know. But I think finding a useful attitude, you know, whether you're, it's compassion. I don't know. It's Look at the book, look at the list, go to the library, download it. My books have been stolen everywhere. You can get them online. But I think useful, I think that word useful, because as you walk into that next patient's room, your job is not to be jolly and for, no. your job is to be useful. So I think just going into that room thinking, how am I going to be useful to that patient is a good way to, to just fall back on without needing to, you know, completely That's change like your mental space. Negative yeah. attitudes. This is ridiculous. Yeah. One. Useful. How am I going to be useful? Yeah. Or like that. Well, let's say the patient comes in with a, with a useless attitude, right? They're pissed yeah. because they were waiting a long time or there was a tr problem with their paperwork and they needed to do it all over. You know, something where they come in with a useless attitude. What do we synchronize. do in that situation? Synchronize with them. Synchronize their body language. Just synchronize their body language and lead them out of it. The, the words go and, you know, if they're like this and, you know, like this, you can kind of be like this back with them until yeah. you slow it down and and just open open them up because they'll be closed in. Yeah, just synchronize them. Make it into a game. I was interviewed by a, a woman in uh, on a radio program in Birmingham, Alabama, where they speak a bit funny. And I mean, I'm sure you've got people remember what I have to say. I was on a book tour and I was picked up by a, a very nice lady that you always have an escort to drive you around to radio shows. And we were leaving the airport and she's talking to me. And I said, look, I have to say something. I know you're speaking English, but I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> it was so funny. Anyway, and but got to the radio station, and they, and like any good interviewer, like you, you've read the books. The, the really useless ones have said, "Oh, send me some questions to ask you." So I don't, and then we never go. But this one said, "Look, I read your book, and I read this bit about synchronizing." So 
I went out. Well, you've synchronized with someone, they start to feel that we've got stuff in common. She said, I, my husband and I went out for dinner on Saturday night, and I thought, I'm going to synchronize with someone in this restaurant. She said, there was a woman over to the side about 15 feet away, and I just, I could see her from my peripheral vision, and I just synchronized when she moved like this or picked something up. I did the same. She said, you won't believe it. After about 20 minutes, she came across and said, I know you from somewhere. Where do I know you from? And she said, it was incredible. It just was a human thing, this synchronizing body language, respectfully. So synchronizing with a peed-off patient, I thought, try, have some fun. See if it works, you know. Just get their body language in a very non-threatening way. Do you have a little uh, more time? Do you have a little more time? I have just a couple more questions for you. But yeah, I, I thought it was an hour anyway. So. Okay, great. Then we've, we've got a bunch more time. In that situation, how do you prevent someone from thinking that you're mimicking them? Because you do it properly. You don't go over the top. That's why I, I get my audiences to synchronize. You synchronize the overall. Look, it's natural. What's how we grow up? It's how we learn our, our skills. It's how you learn how to hold your knife and fork from watching your parents or other people do stuff. It's natural. But I, I say to my audience, okay, you know, stand up, synchronize. Now break synchronization, see what happens. As soon as you break synchronization, I've got A and B, and as soon as B starts doing something else, if you don't even know where the conversation was going, they, everything goes, it's crazy, it interrupts everything. But I say, look, but if A does this, and B does this, B is an idiot. Because it's not the, it's not everything. It's just the overall, like with you now, you would, it's perfectly natural if, you know, you, I'm looking at you, well, I'm looking at the camera, but then you're down there somewhere. But, but you know, I'm, I, and we're just synchronizing ourselves, that's all, in a nice way. You can synchronize the speed of your conversation. You can, look, I've just remembered, because I, I do, I have, where the hell, oh, it's in my other studio. I've got it to show you. I did actually a training video called How to Connect in Healthcare in 90 Seconds or Less. And one of the things I talked about was, with a patient, first thing to do, if it's somebody who's like in bed, I guess, or having a rough time, start synchronizing with their breathing. Breathe at the same speed they're breathing. You know, if you want to be compassionate. I think that's probably for families or whatever I say. But if you start to synchronize your breathing with the person, there'll be an immediate bond because you're both speaking on the out-breath to each other. You're both breathing in together. It's, it's kind of magic. You mentioned families, which actually made me think of something that you said earlier with the eye color and mm -hmm. noticing the eye color of the patient. Yes, but also noticing the eye color of every family member of everyone else in the room, because we something that we sometimes do. And I certainly sometimes do is I'll focus so much on the patient and not so much on the family. But everyone in the room is someone to be considered and respected and everything. So I think you mentioned family, which made me think, yes, and uh, you know, noticing the eye color of everyone in the room is, is a great idea. And colleague, co-workers and, as well. Yes. Just, just look. Every, it's enough. You know, look them in the eye, smile is what I talk about, um, you know, and then synchronize your body language and, and then find common ground, et cetera. All of that happens in about 25 seconds. I mean, yeah. the, the initial contact is, you know, so, I mean, what? Go to a restaurant. Look at restaurants where the staff all get on with each other. That's a great thing to observe. Their body language is the same. They laugh the same way. They do stand the same way and all that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, but eye contact is the big one. Eye contact says, sends the unconscious signal that trust is in the air. And, but uh, but don't overdo it. But <laughs> with oh. the yeah, don't because as physicians we tend to, right? We tend to take like your client that was overthinking it and ended up making them too stiff. We tend to do that, right? We, you tell us to do something. You, okay, right. I'm going to dive headlong into it. I'm going to be the best person at it. But what you're saying is subtly. So just make sure it's not every single thing they do, just like a general sense, the subtle similarities in, you know, how they're sitting, how they're holding their head, how they're, what the, yeah. Too much smiling and too much eye contact is unbelievably creepy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really weird. You know, a split second is enough eye contact to, because to, not everyone can do it. That's why I say, look, my book is unofficially used by the uh, Asperger Society yeah. because I'm not a doctor. They can't officially endorse it. But right from the time How to Make People Like You came out, it's been, uh, because I don't say, oh, you know, make eye contact. I say, just notice what color their eyes are, you know. 
I don't say smile. I say, just say great to yourself a couple of times and you'll be smiling. You know, it's just totally simple things to do. And assuming rapport. Assuming rapport means we just, you know, just stand like as if we're both in a store together waiting for something to happen or whatever. It's just supernatural. I love the saying, the dose makes the poison. So that would be the same thing with eye contact. Yeah. A little bit is, is, is the right dose and too much is going to turn it into poison. So yes, oh, yeah. brief yeah. eye contact. Yeah. Let's say during the visit, it, you know, it started off great. You know, you found common ground. You made eye contact. You had an open posture. Your heart's facing theirs, right? Everything's going only well. Only for a second. Your heart is only exposed for a, a split second. You're not sort okay. of walking around like this. Just enough to say. <laughs> Don't overdo it. Yes. I'm not going to harm you. It's only to say, I'm not going to harm you. You're safe. Which may not be the case, because we might. But first, do yeah, no harm, no. right? Uh, yeah. We found that the visit is slow, slowly going south, right? The ship is turning in the wrong direction. How do we right the ship? Uh, tell me what you mean. Well, like, so we've, maybe we've said some things, we tried to make a joke and the joke didn't hit well. We think that they meant something about their symptoms and really they meant something else. So we misunderstood them. And you notice that their body language is starting to close off. You know, when they answer questions, they're much shorter. So the patient is clearly feeling that a loss of trust during the visit because there are other things that didn't go well. So uh, any way to help yeah well golden rule number one don't make jokes just be say something that might be amusing or colorful but don't make jokes you're not going to win that game i mean all speakers learn that in the end do you the one about that or you know this is no no jokes I, i wouldn't do that at all i would be you can adjust your attitude by being light-hearted about something um, and lots of feedback is a big one. Just nodding, as we mentioned earlier, I'm listening to you, I'm nodding and grunting with you and all that sort of thing. And you know, the other thing is, if it, if you think it's going south, it may not be going south. Um, I have people say to me, well, p- people don't like me. I say, how do you know that? How do you know they don't like you? You know, most people don't know what they're thinking, never mind what someone else is thinking. Oh, well, they look away. But you know, I say, well, when I first started speaking, I would have maybe a ten percent of the audience were always looking down, looking away, and whatever, and all this sort of thing. But you know, at the end, and I'm thinking, oh, bummer, I was going to talk to somebody else. And but in the end, they were the ones that had the great questions because they would. It's just, you know, it's it, how they were concentrating. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we can if we went further, we could go into visual people, auditory people, and kinesthetic people. They make their decisions. Visual, look, about a third of the population are primarily kinesthetic, touchy-feely. That means uh, that they make the decisions based on the way they feel. They feel. Everyone thinks they're visual because they cross the road with their eyes open, but, but about 7% of the population are primarily auditory. They make sense of the world by the way things sound. And about half the population are primarily visual. Show me the pictures, show me the facts, whatever. But here's, here's an example. Let's say I'm a travel agent and somebody comes in, says, I want to go on holiday. If I can immediately spot, let's say that they are a kinesthetic, touchy-feely person. It's very easy to spot when, when you know how to do it. For that, we can't do it here. Borrow one of my books or whatever. It'll show you how to do it quickly. But if they're kinesthetic, I'd say, I got a great place for you. The sand's soft, the water's so warm, and the beds are incredibly comfortable. I'm telling them what the place feels like. And they're going, oh, swoon. If they are auditory, I will say, you know, I've got a great place for you. All you can hear are the waves and the gulls. It's away from all the noise of the city, and they sort of melt before you. And if they're visual, say, hey, look at the pictures. What do you think of this? You know, that's all. Yeah. In conversation, look, I've got five children and 2,000 grandchildren, but I've got at least one of each and everything. And, and I'm exaggerating, by the way, about my grandchildren. But, for example, with my auditory daughter, I'll say, hey, how does this sound to you? Okay. To my kinesthetic daughter and my wife, I'll say, how do you feel about such and such? And to my visual son, I'll say, Thomas, how do you see this working out? How do you picture this? And I've gone straight on to their primary sense. But this is kind of advanced stuff. Yeah. 
that's why stories work because it appeals to uh, metaphors. It appeals to everybody. And I hope that I'm not making that sound complicated because it's not complicated. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. And, you know, for a deeper dive, definitely check out the books. I want to ask you, actually, speaking of books, how to make someone fall in love with you in 90 minutes or less, right? Yeah. Certainly, we don't want our patients to fall in love with us. But what I'm talking about is more of the long game, right? The Like the relationship building after those first introductions. So we don't have 90 minutes, but, you know, maybe over many visits, or a longer visit. So, you know, anything else that you would recommend in terms of report building for those uh, longer relationships? But you're not talking about dating or falling no. in love to get married. No, 100. There are laws against that. <laughs> Definitely yeah, no, no, do not okay. date your patients. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you're, you know, your listeners, your viewers are interested in, yes. in that. Well, you know, if you look at, if you, we discovered that we, all my books, first of all, are not based on what I think. They're based on modeling excellence using neuro-linguistic programming. I go, we've been out, and we've, for, but to write my love book, which is the book, the, my, everyone who's read it says it's the best book I've written, and I do too, except it doesn't sell because who's going to buy a book about love written by an English guy? Well, you know, if I was Italian or Spanish <laughs> or something, oh, well, it would be great. So, but the thing is, we interviewed 2,400 people, couples who've been together for more than 20 years and were still actively bonkers about each other, crazy about each other. And we look for common threads, and we look for common threads in about you know, 200 people who consistently mess up in relationships. We found some really fun things, and, and maybe it's relative to this question. First of all, we found we don't fall in love with other people. We fall in love with the feelings we get when we're with them. We get addicted to them. You know, Great couples are what I call matched opposites. They're matched in... And this works. I, we, did, we actually did this for a law firm where they, we used the, th the matched opposites thing for lawyers and their assistants, their, you know, PAs or whatever they were. And then we made sure they were matched opposites. In other words, they weren't like attracts like and they weren't opposites attract. Matched opposites are matched in a way their upbringing, they're, you know, they hold their knives and forks the same way, whatever, but they're opposites in their behavior. So they want to go over the same horizon together, but they bring different behaviors. To so it. you shore up each other's weaknesses. Uh, well, I wouldn't use that word. I mean, you just complement each other. Yeah, but you're not. Look, like attracts like. Yeah. Uh, is eventually you drive each other crazy. Opposites attract. Yeah, for about you know five minutes, and then you know that's they're not going anywhere either. I mean, I'm saying this because I, I've been married twice, but my second marriage now, we've been married for 52 years. So I do have some creds to bring to yeah. this, and, uh, you know. But uh, I'm not answering your question about long-term relationships with clients. I just think, look, it, it, uh, this is probably going to go down completely the wrong way, but selling most professions, in a way, it's all like dating. I mean, you want to, obviously not romantic or anything like that but you do want to just feel good with somebody yeah absolutely and so you know i mean i don't look i don't want to go there. i don't want to mix up how to make people fall. no but there's but a big overlap between the two there's a big overlap between like this is one of the ideas behind this podcast is taking things that aren't typically used in the doctor patient relationship and applying them so yes yeah. no not making your patient fall in love with you but you know yeah. there's a lot of a lot of a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. Yeah, look at my body language. I'm getting defensive yeah. now. But I got in a lot of trouble for a, a post I once wrote about flirting your way to the top, because it was taken that I meant, oh, you know, show your legs to the boss or whatever. Look, I'm I'm of an age where I'm probably as politically incorrect as you can get, and and I'm fessing up right now because I. I was brought up in England and, and all that stuff, but and I say the wrong thing sometimes. But I meant by flirt. Look, I flirt. I'm flirting with you now, and you're flirting with me to some extent with just the way we look at each other and the little smirks and things. That's what I meant by it. You know, yeah. instead of being so serious about everything, it's just being light-hearted. For me, that's what flirting is. I flirt. Look, you watch. I live. I'm on a farm. If I open the window, I can see all my horses. The horses flirt with each other. The horses flirt with my, my got my family and my daughter's getting married here on you know, the weekend. So we've got the house full of people. We just, we've, if flirting may be the wrong word, but it's just being just super nice. It's sort of yeah. fun and, you know, fun with each other. And, and I think that's, maybe that's 
once you get a relationship with a patient, and you don't have to be, I mean, you can, you know, you can maybe smirk occasionally about something yeah. that you, you remember that you went through together. It's just, everyone's getting so uptight about stuff. Okay, agreed, we, agreed, so agreed. Cut that out. <laughs> Take the scissors to this job. <laughs> One last question, because a lot of the listeners have side gigs, right? Like nowadays, being a physician doesn't seem to be enough. So we all do other things, right? Yeah. Or many of us do. So we've got business relationships that aren't just our colleagues in medicine. So maybe we're doing some networking. So if we're having a networking interaction, right? You go to a conference, something. Is that any different from, and I would imagine the answer is no, but I want to hear from you. That interaction, any different from what we've talked about earlier? I think, let me tell you about, you know, essentially we humans, we do, we come in, we only really do six things on a day-to-day -day basis. Five of them are we go out into the world and have experiences through our five senses. We see, we hear, we feel physical sensations, smell, taste. There's only one other thing we do, really. We process language. We put our experiences into words. And first we explain them to ourselves, then we explain them to other people. I mean, that's what I'm doing now. I'm explaining my experiences to you, and they will be explaining your experiences to other people. Um, but how do we do that? Well, it, it, your experiences become words, your words become thoughts, your thoughts become ideas, your ideas become actions, your actions become habits. Your habits drive your personality, drives your sidekick, side gig, or your whatever. Okay, But it's at the point where we take our ideas to other people. We do it in three ways. One and we've been talking a bit about this, is through, and this is, this will be, we'll be able to make this distinction when you deal with patients. One is conversation. Conversation uh, is where we find a reason to find common ground and bond with other people. We converse to build trust into a relationship, even if it's only for a few seconds. The next way is something called communication. Communication is completely different to conversation because it's goal-oriented. We communicate to get something. If I want my daughter to tidy her room, we might be chatting for a few months and say, hey, by the way, you know, now we're into communication. I want to tidy your room or whatever, you know. And, and, uh, and the third way is something is through story speak. The greatest communicators in the world uh, tell short stories and whatever. Now, as far as side gigs go, it, this is the book that, uh, convince them is the book that we, we now, you can put down as being me mostly. How to make people like you is great, but this book's going, going bonkers. But I talk in there about what I call your st statement of, well, I talk a little bit in, in this about your statement of fortune. My new book is all, a lot about it, but but it goes like this. If I say to you, Bradley, okay, Bradley, why should I do business with you? I'm asking you. I'm oh. putting you on the spot, of course. Oh. <laughs> well, why, should I, why should I attend your podcast? Well, because it brings a lot to the table. There's not a lot of podcasts that are similar to it. And we really think out of the box and help people, help physicians be better physicians in a way that other podcasts aren't approaching it. Okay. Not bad. Now, with a statement of fortune, you say to me, Nick, why should I? buy your book, or why should I interview you? Go on. Oh, <laughs> Nick, why should I interview you? You know how some people have trouble connecting and communicating face-to-face? -face? Of course, you say, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I write books and give speeches that make it sound really simple and interesting so they can meet more people and find fresh opportunities. I've just told you what I do, who I do it for, why I am different, how I do it, and what the benefit is to them in a way that an eight-year-old could understand and remember it. Got it. This is something that, so you're on a plane. So you're ele your elevator pitch, but No, only, it's not an elevator pitch. Only time to get from floor one to floor two. It's not, look, I've got the, here's the golden rule of elevator pitches. Don't pitch anyone in an elevator, okay? <laughs> no, it's not an elevator pitch. It's what I do and why, and there's no pitch in there. There's no pitch in there at all. I've just told you what I do and who I do it for. I'm not saying you should buy yeah. it. You know, you know, 
you know, Nick, you know, I'm not getting to sit on a plane and someone says, you know, so what do you do? I say, oh, well, you know, some people have trouble connecting communities for you. Yeah, well, I write books and give speech. You, you've got to deliver it in a super conversa- conversational yeah. way. But it does say everything. And if you've got a side gig, you know, it, you know, when you could, if you could ask, articulate slightly differently the question I asked you, which was full of abstracts, I still came away from it not really knowing what you were doing. And look, I'm giving, you know, I'm being an asshole on, online now, but that's not fair to you. But I mean, uh, I really care. You know, it, it can be, they, they can be done much more simple. It yeah. took me flipping years to figure that out. I didn't yeah. figure that out in the beginning. You know, it's like most great bits of word, they take 10 years to figure them out. Yeah. So, so like a one liner that summarizes, it sounds like your. How, how you might be useful, actually, to go back to using your word about attitudes, is how you are useful. Well, no, you start off with, you know how some physicians, blah, 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 have trouble, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Well, I gather information from all over the world, from the finest speakers there are, and deliver it to them in a way that they can listen to in the car or whatever. Yeah. So they can, and if you yeah. have a side gig, yeah, so do the, do the same thing. Network, you go to a networking yeah. meeting, so watch your side gig. You know, some patients, you know, they can't stand up when they're playing golf or whatever. Well, yeah. Whatever it is. But you set the scene first of who your, who your people are. Great advice. Great advice. Well, you've got a lot to do because you've got a wedding coming up. I didn't know about that. Well, <laughs> with all you've got going on, I appreciate you taking time out this morning to to talk to me and to help the physician listeners to to help those first few moments during the patient interaction to really help them like us and therefore trust us and move along with the visit. So so for those who want to learn more about Nick Boothman, the books, again, the one that he's really wants us to read first is convince them in 60 seconds, but the sem- seconds. sorry, convince 90. them in 90, sorry, convince them in 90 seconds, um, how to make people like you in 90 seconds or less. And, you know, for those of us who are still single out there, not me, but if you are, how to make someone fall in love with you in 90 minutes or less. So Nicholas Boothman, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. No matter what your insurance needs are, Set for Life Insurance has you covered. They're a nationally recognized leader in disability, life, and long-term care insurance, serving clients across all 50 states. Their dedicated team specializes in assisting medical residents, physicians, dentists, business owners, and other high-income professionals. Setforlifeinsurance.com or call them at 1-888-553-3559. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.